You're listening to the winning literary show, Off the Shelf Books Talk Radio, live with host Denise Turney, author of the books Long Walk Up, Portia, Love More Over Me, Spiral, Love Has Many Faces, and Rosetta's Great Hope. Turn up your dial and get ready for a blast of feature author interviews, 411 on book festivals, writing conferences, and so much more. Ready? Let's go. To live a creative life, we must lose our fear of being wrong. That's an anonymous quote. Again, to live a creative life, we must lose our fear of being wrong. Good morning, good morning to our loyal off-the-shelf listeners who've been with us since the very beginning, which is going back over 16 years. If this is your first time tuning in to Off the Shelf, I want to tell you that you are absolutely listening to the winning book radio show, Off the Shelf Books Talk Radio, and welcome to our Saturday, October the 3rd show. I want to thank you again for joining us. We have an awesome author. I'm excited about today's show on deck for us as he shares tales, tales, tales from the day. So get get ready. Get ready for, for him. He's on deck even now. But before we introduce to you to this morning's amazing Arthur, I want to ask you guys again, how good of a mystery sleuth are you? Do you love mystery? Do you value relationships? You know, a lot of times we go after goals. We go after goals if you're in business, a sales goal. If you're a teacher, a goal to if your students can perform better on tests and get better scores and more be better behaved as a parent. You want your kids to get good grades and act certain ways. But how many of us, our top priority is, I want to make sure I do what it takes, that I have optimum relationships with everyone who comes into my life. Everybody. I don't care if I just if if it's when I'm at Walmart, the post office, whatever. I, everybody I come in contact with, that's my top priority. I want to, or one of them, I want an optimum relationship. That means you can't be impatient. If you cuss at people, that's got to go. If that if that's your priority, if you value relationships, even with like Raymond in 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 love pour over me, his father and he, he have a very very complicated relationship. But his father stayed to raise him when his mother left. But his father has untreated alcoholism. How do you how do you how do you get love into that type of a relationship? And then the woman Brenda he meets when he's at college. They are meant to be together. If you, once you get first, you won't have to get too far after he gets to college in Philadelphia when he when he leaves Ohio to see that they belong together. Oh, and what a, I, I think the ending will really, really, really leave a strong emotional imprint on you. And then the, these friends, <laughs> Raymond and his four male friends, something I don't see a lot. I don't see a lot of male friends celebrated. But I actually worked a job where a guy told me friends, a series of friends he met at college, they got together at least once a year. They go skiing, they go camping, they go hiking. Every year they got together and they kept their friendship going. These are the type of friends Raymond has in love pour over me. If you love mystery, because there's a murder mystery tucked in here, if you love mystery and you really value relationships, you really value people, and, and and you, you you value friendships, relationships, and mystery. I, I really would encourage you to stop what you're doing and get a copy of Love Pour Over Me. I, I think you will love this book. It's in ebook and in print 
format: Amazon, Barnes and Noble, eBook it, uh, uh, Apple Books, you name it. You can get a copy of Love Pour Over Me by Denise Turney. So please go get a copy of Love Pour Over Me by Denise Turney today. And now let us go and meet our very special off-the-shelf guest. This is what a lot of you came over here for. And our special off-the-shelf guest this morning is Wayne McFarlane. And Wayne is the author of the book, Tales from the Day. I, when I was researching for his interview, I said, oh, my goodness, this is, gonna be, this is going to be a good, fun, entertaining interview. Now, Wayne w- wandered away from a small Midwestern town some years ago. And with absolutely no planning, His history is one of stumbling into one bog, as he says is his website, after another, from the Dakotas to California, from Pamplona to Paris. And his main claim to fame is mostly and surprisingly, he says, not being dead, plus getting involved with a lot of strange stuff, usually by accident. And you can check Wayne out online at Tells from the Day. Dot com and it's T A L E S F R O M T H E D A Y dot com T A L E S F R O M T H E D A Y dot com Tales from the Day dot com. We're absolutely honored to have Wayne here with us this morning. Welcome to Off the Shelf, Wayne. Denise, I swear, if I wasn't happily married, I'd propose to you right now. That was great. Thank you. <laughs> yes. Oh my God! Well, well, it's 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 good to have you here with us. And again, as I was researching for your your interview, I was like, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, and spreading the word about about your show so more and more people can learn about you and your books. Now, the first few questions I'm going to ask you, I ask every guest who comes on the show because our listeners like to get a little backstory on the authors before I start talking about their books. So to kick it off, can you tell us where you grew up and what life was like for you growing up? Yeah, I, I thanks. I, that's that's a new one. Most people don't ask me. I grew up in the Midwest in two places pretty much, uh, one in a small town in Minnesota, and the other was with my grandparents on a small, pretty tough little farm in South Dakota. So my my main goal growing up was to leave. It just yeah, yeah. People who have not lived in a small community, uh, I mean, you know, you get nostalgic for it as you get older. But at the time, there was no there was no internet, there was no cable, there was literally going to town maybe once a week, no Starbucks. And I just am not one to spend my life pulling weeds out of the corn. So as soon as uh, as soon as I could get out, I left, ran off to California. But where else would you run off to? I mean, it's got to be California, right? And when you say small town, I'm trying to picture it. I remember I heard an Olympian uh, speak once at a, an event I was at, and she yes. grew up in a town. I think it was less than like 5,000 people. So when you say small like is is it like a hundred thousand people or it sound like it's five hundred five hundred yeah and uh-huh. I don't mean five hundred thousand I mean five hundred right and wow. uh yeah yeah the old country western story of no stoplight on Main Street and that kind of thing yeah uh the town of Minnesota where my parents lived was twenty thousand. 
but I, I spent a lot of my time, you know, in the farm community, and there, 500 people, yeah. And we were out on wow. the farm, so there were, well, were a lot less than 500 people on the farm, I tell you. I can see, well, that, I think any, all of our listeners, and maybe many of them see why you're like, I'm getting out of here. So when you were oh, a kid, yeah. other than just saying, I'm getting out of this little town, what did did you have dreams of becoming something? Did, as a kid, did you say, when I grow up, I want to be? Well, mostly, I think, Denise, I, I was just wild to, uh, I remember I used to go walking around at night sometimes and just say, I'm not going to live and die here. I mean, there's a whole world out there, and that's when, you know, kids were starting to run around all over Europe and do things. And and um, I read that stuff sort of like reading a penny dreadful back in the 1800s, and I just say, I'm not just going to sit here and let all this pass me by. And uh, so as soon as I as soon as I could, I left. And it's uh, yeah, it was quite a quite a difference, I have to say. Well, you know what? You're gonna share some of those tales with us. But who or what inspired your 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 passion for for writing books? Who 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 helped that come about? Before we start talking about tales from the day. Yeah. Well, really, I think what got me going here is that uh, I got involved with a lot of entertainment and other stuff over the years, and finally, here not so long ago. my wife of many years and I had started a software company, and we sold it. And I've always loved to read. So I really got focused on biographies and autobiographies and whatever. And, Denise, i got to tell you, most memoirs really suck. I mean, they are really bad. And, really? Uh, most, oh, most of them Why are. Why, are you kind of are, boring or what? You say they're bad. Well, I, I bad from the sense that most of them I found sort of go like this. I looked at the mountains with a straight jaw, and I put my hand over my eye, and I said, there lies my future. Do these you <laughs> and I both know it doesn't happen like that. And I started thinking about it, and I thought, you know, the things in my life were uh, just episodes like, Pitching a loan shark or losing 10 grand at the Hollywood sign or blowing town with the monkey or whatever. And and a, most of that stuff is a matter of just seizing the craziness as it starts and seeing where it takes you. And um, I suspect your, your book that you talked about at the beginning of the show, it sounds to me it, it's kind of like that, describing the, you know, the interactions of people and the kind of strange things that happen as you as you go along and that that's really the way that life works. Anybody who tries to pretend that it's some kind of pre planned thing that I knew from the time I was three I wanted to be a pianist. No you didn't. No that come on. You know, that doesn't work like that. So I'm willing to bet that if somebody pulled up to the curb, you know, when when you were starting out and said, what do you think you'll be doing in 2020? You wouldn't have guessed this, you know? Yeah. It's because life happens. and uh, it, 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 does, it does, you know, but I do think sometimes you do know I want to be a painter or something happens, yeah. like with Duke Ellington. I know it happened with me when I was 10. You might know I want to write. I want to sing. I want to dance. But, no, you don't know that 20 years from now you're going to be doing what 
whatever it is you're doing, you might know yeah. this area you want to focus on. That I do think yeah. happens because it happened to me, but you don't know the specifics. So that was what makes Tales from the Day so exciting and interesting. So you were just talking about memoirs and and how a lot of them you, you're not crazy about. But So how is Tales from the Day, if you can tell off-the-shelf listeners, how is Tales from the Day written? Is it is it written like a, a novel, a work of nonfiction? How did you did you write the book, and why did you choose that particular format? Well, I, I, the reason I chose the format was that I really felt that the way that life goes – it tends to be episodic. In other words, you you maybe get a divorce or you get your first book published after a lot of trouble or whatever it may be. And so the format I chose was Tales from the Day, for example, has 28 chapters, and each one of them is a, a block-to-block story. I mean, it starts and it ends within that chapter. And um, when I, I'm sure you've taken shots from publishers and agents in your day. I mean, when I first started with that format, I have another publisher now, but the initial, they were shrieking away, Denise, no, no, you can't do that. <laughs> you've got to have a narrative arc you have to start with, getting cancer and then curing it and and all works out in the end and whatever. And I thought, well... Maybe. So I think there's kind of a thread through these stories. I think I'm told, too, that most of them are humorous. A couple are not. And um, But anybody who gets tales from the day, to answer your question, no, it's not a novel in the sense that that yours are, but somebody can delve into it and read a chapter and then – and that's a complete story in and of itself. And they come back to – another chapter and like I say I hope there's some kind of thread in there but but that's what I decided it was mainly driven by my own conviction that getting to where you are in life where you end up in life is for most people is a series of events not any one particular thing but a number of individual things uh, that that come together. It may be that certain events have more power than others. That's for sure. And I got to tell so, you, if you were driven from the age of ten to be a writer, man, I just I just doffed my hat. I mean, that would be really tough because you know writing is you and I know a lot of it has to do with just the span of time you've lived and experiences and observations and and you know it'd be tough slugging that your way through that when you were younger. So. And not losing heart, right? So, yeah, yeah, bravo. you got to keep. You, oh, well, thank you, and same to you. You got to keep going, just like you. You continue on your journeys, which led to tales from the day. So, when tell us, want to talk about some of the snippets, the stories, and tales from the day. When and how did Joe and Mo cross your path? Well. <laughs> Uh, Joe the Mo, he was. Uh, that's one of my stories. That's that's really uh, not too humorous. It's about a, a dear friend of mine who uh, went off to Vietnam and came back, and a war kind of followed him, and in the end killed him. That was Joe the Mo, uh, and you know that was before uh, a write-up I put in here about pitching a loan shark which was probably one of the more eventful moments when I was working in the in broadcasting. 
and uh, and there was another episode where the big I had the biggest break I thought I'd ever had in my life doing work for the unveiling of the Hollywood sign turned out to be my story the day we lost ten grand at the Hollywood sign. So and so, so how did you, how did how did that come about? Well, got involved. I, yeah, how that came about, and he says, we, I was in California, and how broke was I? I mean, I was really broke. I was living your car broke, right? I mean, we were doing uh, basically commercials for businesses. So we'd take a bunch of pictures and and then do a narrative soundtrack with somebody extolling the virtues of shingles or whatever it is that our client was doing. And then along with the narration, slides would appear. And a long time ago now. but So one day we used a, a laser in a presentation at a trade show. So I'm sitting in what passed from my office, and I get a call from this person who says, are you the one with the laser? Well, Denise, I didn't own a laser. I borrowed a laser. you know. And I, but I said, sure, yeah, that's me. And they identified themselves and said, we have a contract to provide searchlights for the unveiling of the Hollywood sign after a live show on the mountain. And uh, and he said, we were thinking, what could be better than to add lasers? <laughs> and, of course, I said, I can't think of a thing that would be better than adding lasers. <laughs> and <laughs> had no lasers, and it's on the top of Mount Oh, Leeds. my gosh. Yeah. And there's no power up there, no water up there. So. Oh my goodness. And so I went around to the laser company. I got a water truck and a power truck on, and then I went around to the laser company and and uh, I said, look, if you lend me a couple of lasers, you'll get screen credit. CBS was going to produce it, so it was going to go live to a third of the country. And I said, you'll get you a really screen took, credit. You really took this on, not not even knowing if you could pull it off. Yeah, yeah, I figured, well, you know, what what could possibly go wrong, right? So I, I got the laser company to lend us a couple of lasers, and they were hesitant because the lasers at then have a, had a big tube in them that was water-cooled, and if it got too hot or too cold, it would blow up. And each tube was $5,000, right? So oh. here, yeah, no kidding. And uh there's a virtue in being, you know, too young to know how stupid you're being. <laughs> and the day of the show came, and my wife and I would, went up there, and we we recently gotten married, so we hadn't been married that long. But I will tell you, Denise, from the base of the Hollywood sign, it is a beautiful sight out over the, you know, the Hollywood and Santa Monica, whatever. The only problem was. It, you know, it never sleets in Southern California, but it sleeted that night. And oh. Yeah, no kidding. And so we're up there, and the the show was funded by the old Playboy guy, Hugh Hefner, who did a fundraiser. And the live entertainment was done by a lady who... I know you would really like. Her name was Lola Falana. I never knew oh, her that okay. well. Yeah, I never knew her that well. But I am telling you, I love the concept of her. She not only had her own song, What Lola Wants, Lola Gets, but Denise, she won part of the New York Mets in a Baccarat game, 
which she later sold for 14 million bucks. How could you not love a woman like that? <laughs> I mean, it was, so, so she finishes her show and they get on the headset and they said, okay, Wayne, they do the old five, four, three, two, one countdown. And we fired up the first laser and it was sleeting on it and it blew up instantly. Yeah. Oh, and wow. so, Gloria, my then my new wife, and I were running around with umbrellas trying to hold them over the second laser, and that one emitted like one small beam, and that one blew up. And what I remember of the evening is after it was all over, Gloria and I are sitting under the giant H on the Hollywood sign, and it should have been, it should have been a symbol that from that letter, a a actress in the 1930s by the name of Peg Entwistle had jumped to her death after she lost a movie part. I mean, it should have been a warning, right? So I turned to Gloria and I said, we have just tanked in front of 15 million people, but hey, we get paid tomorrow. We wouldn't yeah. make any money, but yeah, at least pay our bills, right? So I thought, well, how bad can it be? Pretty bad, actually. So the next morning, I call these people, Denise, and the conversation went like this. I said, hey, I want to drive down and pick up my check. And there was a long pause on the other end. And a guy starts laughing. He says, well, good luck with that. They just declared bankruptcy. Oh, <laughs> yeah. oh, so, oh, so oh. The, the punch the punchline of the story is I'm sitting at my desk, and Denise, I don't know if I was weeping, probably. Um, and Gloria comes in, and she had a copy of the L.A. Times, then just a paper, newspaper, right? And she grabbed my elbow and she said, you have got to see this. And there was a review of the show, and they were raving about us. And wow. We didn't, yeah, we didn't do anything. And so it was, and the lasers shot into the night sky, blah, 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 <laughs> which, 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 which were really the searchlights of our, our bankrupt employer. And as it, tur as it turned out, when the sleet started, all the reporters and everybody else where they were taping it went into the, the trailer where they had an open bar. And everybody got hammered, right? No, there was nobody watching this. And so when they looked out the window and saw the, the searchlights, the reporters all wrote up, Denise was the best review we ever got. And we got we didn't make any money, but we got a lot of the business from that. So Wow. Yeah, good for I you. Said, you know what? So you maybe you did make a good move. And talking about getting a lot of business, I don't know if this came first or that uh, 10K Hollywood Sonics came first. But can you tell us about the company that you did found and managed? Was that before yeah. or after this event? That was that was after. And uh, uh, I am Gloria, my wife, was a, got her PhD from a. From Caltech, which is kind of like the triumphant, uh, the trifecta of uh, MIT, Harvard, and Caltech. So I tell people, and I mean it, Denise, I am living proof you can marry above your station. It can be done. I have done it. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we're involved with a bunch of little radio stations and stuff, and they all um, needed to control how their commercials ran, and so computers were just really getting popular, and so started writing little programs to do that, and pretty soon we started a software company, and before we knew it, we were doing 
software for businesses, and then we started our own thing and produced some software, and in the end sold it worldwide. So, wow. and yeah, and people used to ask me, "What is it you do?" And I would tell them, "I sell my wife's brain." <laughs> what, oh, so what, she's, what she's a, so she does. She's into technology as well. Yeah. Yep. And so she created the the software. I mean, we'd find a need, and then I'd go out and sell it. And she used to, I called her a genius, and she used to call me the the mouth that pours. (laughs) (laughs) So can you explain to us, this is something new I heard while I was researching for your interview. What is unsold radio commercial time? What is that? Well, what that is is, that's back in the day. The reason I love what you're doing so much, Denise, is that, you know, I, in my career, I spent a bunch of time in in radio, in local radio. And the reason I love what you're doing is it's kind of the return of that. And back in the day, um, radio, especially not the big stations, you know, NBC affiliates and stuff, but smaller radio stations were community radio stations owned by let's promotional people let's say and they never had any money and so there would be a radio station in Poughkeepsie or someplace and since they never had any money and they couldn't sell all their advertising you know during a a program then it used to be you were allocated six minutes or so of of blank space in a program to sell to put in ads but if he hadn't sold the ads, he had nothing to stick in there. So what everybody used to do until the IRS figured it out was they would go out to, say, a car dealer and say, I need a, a used car. And for that $3,000 car, I'll trade you $3,000 worth of advertising, which they hadn't sold anyway. Yeah. So, so the, the, the write-up that I – that I have about that is called the day we pitched the loan shark and how that happened was this guy I knew this guy called me one day and said I just bought a little radio station in Las Vegas now back then some radio stations would have very low power they're called daytimers they'd only operate pretty much during the day but my friend didn't care because I mean what Unless you're into lizards, there's nothing around Las Vegas. That's where the action is. So he said, listen, here's my idea. And this guy was quite a character, so I thought, oh, boy. And he said, my idea is this. We are going to live like kings because we, including me, right, we're going to sell the airtime of the station, but we won't take cash. We'll take all trade. We'll, We'll go to shows. We'll have, you know, restaurant tabs, we'll do everything, we won't pay for anything. Well, I thought, okay, we'll give that a shot. So I went into Las Vegas and really, Denise, it was an easy sell. I mean, if you've got a restaurant that every day has to over-order 20% of their food to make sure they got enough, they've got meals they can give away. And then you got a radio station who's got advertising they haven't sold. So you trade, and it's like everybody's getting stuff for free. I mean, not really, but that's how it seems. Mm. So, uh, yeah. So, how, go ahead. 
So no, so so that's what so the loan the loan shark. I'm gonna say that story didn't end well for you. <laughs> well, actually, ended better for us than the loan shark because my friend, who had the radio station, one day after a few months of trading advertising, called me into his office and said, "We're out of money." And I thought, well, no surprise there. We're not bringing any in, you know. And he said, "We're going to go to Big Jim's bail bonds." And we're going to sell them a year contract for cash. Now, Denise, I was new to Las Vegas. But even I knew that Big Jim was the biggest loan shark in town. And I said, you really think that's a good idea? And he said, yeah, it's a great idea. He said, listen to this. I even made him a commercial. So he plays this commercial. And it was really nice. I mean, it was this stentorian disc jockey voice backed with nice music and who was telling listeners that if you got in trouble with the law, call Big Jim and he'd bail you out. And I thought, okay, I'll go off the ride on that one. It sounds like it might be good, and it would be my account, right? So off we go to Big Jim's. And now Big Jim was pretty slippery about meetings. Even the feds had trouble getting a meeting with this guy. So we go in the conference room, <laughs> and here's Big Jim. And another young guy in there who was Little Jim, his son, reputed to be mean as a rattlesnake. And Denise, he looked like a mob guy. I mean, he had the razor slick cut back hair and the suede shoes and the pink earrings. And he opens up by saying, I don't even know why we're here. We're not going to buy anything. And my friend says, well, I even made you a commercial. And a kid says, we don't want to hear any stupid. And Big Jim holds up his hand. And all he says is, play it. So my mm-hmm. friend pushes the button, and Denise, instead of the commercial he played for me, out comes my friend's voice, <coughs> backed by music, organ music, in a minor key, and the dialogue went like this. Have you killed your wife? If you have money in the bank here at Big Jim's Bail Bonds, we don't care. Have you hit your mom with an axe? <laughs> If you have equity in real estate here at Big Jim's, we don't care. The kid went crazy. He leaped out of his chair, and and then he looked over, and, and Big Jim was laughing so hard we thought he was going to have a heart attack. And and when he recovered, he said, okay. He said, okay. He said, that, that was really stupid, but it took some courage. He said, okay, I'll do your deal. But there's two conditions. So my friend is fumbling with his pen, you know, and trying to get and pushing the contract out. And he says, what are the conditions? And Big Jim says, first of all, you give me that commercial, and it better be the only copy. <laughs> and, he said, and he said, the second condition is you never run anything on the air without my advance approval. So my friend says, done. And Denise, we got the deal. All ca- We walked out of there literally with a bag full of cash for a year's worth of advertising. And the the punchline here, I guess, is that I thought Big Jim wanted that commercial to destroy it. But yeah. years later years later I found out that he played that commercial at every single party wow. he went to. Yeah, for years, right up until he went to jail. Oh my goodness. Wow. <laughs> How yeah. much? How much, Wayne? Does being in radio and this? I mean, it's changed so much now. So much is online, yeah. and you got yeah. traditional radio and, ma- and magazines and newspapers struggling, and 
except for those ones who are, you know, becoming innovative and coming on online. How much does it cost even now, though? Like I know uh, I've, there's still places where you can see those small brick-and-mortar radio stations tucked back yeah. in the middle of nowhere. How much does yeah. it cost to run radio? I've heard it's expensive with the licensing and everything, but how much, if somebody wanted to do like a little small radio station, is it expensive? Could they do it for what? How many thousand a month? Yeah, I, these days, uh, you know, I'm a bit out of that now, but I know that your licensing and other fees and your costs are kind of relative to the not only the area that you cover, but also the population in that area. And there's different kinds of radio stations. Like, for example, with your podcast, which, again, is why I love this kind of thing so much, uh, your audience depends on how big you can build it. You can go anywhere in the world. You can go all over the world. But with a small brick-and-mortar radio station, uh, to answer your question about costs, if you're in a smaller community, um, you know, your hard costs, your license costs tend to be kind of a sliding cost, depending on, you know, where you are. But uh, part of it depends on – there's different definitions of a radio station. Uh, one is clear channel, which means your broadcast goes out in a big circle. And another type of broadcast is straight line broadcast where you, you have a radio station, but it can only broadcast to the east or to the west and then only, you know, so much power. So it kind of depends on what kind of license you have. To answer your question, in a small community, you could probably buy into a radio station and own it for under $100,000. Yeah, maybe a lot less than that. It just depends on where you are. I know a radio station in a little town in the Midwest fairly recently sold for like uh I think it was twenty five thousand dollars. Wow, but complete, then the monthly Yeah. And then and then your monthly overhead, I guess it's like paying rent. I it's it's not that but if it's twenty five thousand your no. monthly overhead can't be that it's gotta be low. No. Um, no. Ma- mainly it's it mainly it's for staff, because as you know now, another reason why what you're doing is so great, it's live. Here we are. But radio stations now will pay to get a format, a pre-done format off the satellite. So a lot of times you hear things that sound like they actually will have little don't what they call donuts in there where a local announcer can say coming to you from big stone south dakota your country station but all the music and all the rest of it is pre-recorded from some big place in new york or whatever and broadcast over satellite yeah and that can be expensive so in a small community what the real challenge is and they they do quite well in small communities <coughs> small newspapers which are going bankrupt in all the big cities and small broadcast facilities, they focused on local stuff, local high school games, yeah. that yeah. kind of thing. And they do they do extremely well. They really do. Yeah, yeah and, and that's the that's ticket I, for those who the smaller ones who do survive. Because you're not going to get that local news anywhere else. Now, tell us, right. tell us, Wayne, how in the world you've done radio, the Lone Shark, the Hollywood sign. How did you get into the film the film business? 
Well, you know, when when I ran away from the farm and ended up in California, uh, the the only thing I knew how to do was I could sell stuff, but you know, I could write a little a little script for a business commercial or whatever, and and so I just started pitching people on letting me do that, and then as we got a couple of things under our belt. But it was all bootstrapped. I mean, we just had no money at all. It was really the, the starving times, you know. Then it's like anything else. It's like what you're doing. You've been doing it for 16 years. Really raised my eyebrows with that. You've got to be doing a lot right to do that. And as we got out there, suddenly something would come along that was a little bigger. And we'd always grab it. Just like when I talked about the Hollywood sign. You, you guys got some lasers? Sure. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> and so I think the elements of it are kind of what you touched on in the beginning is you got to be get out there. And then when things got come along, you got to seize them knowing that you have no idea where it's going to take you. Mm. And a lot of people just get deer in the headlights. I mean, something, and I've heard more people than I care to talk about say, oh, I can't, oh, I couldn't do that. We don't have any whatever it was. And uh, and so they missed some opportunities. But as you know, and I sure learned uh, when we started doing that, boy, that's stressful. I mean, like you pointed out when I talked about the Hollywood sign, when you're doing stuff just on a wing and a prayer, the stress is hideous. And yeah. and most and most people don't want to put themselves through it. Now, did you did, did you produce any films? And if so, are they available for viewing? Can any of our off-the-shelf listeners go catch any of your films? No, that's one thing I never I never did. I was on the periphery a lot of times, and uh, but that was not um, you know part of part of my thing. We did. Uh, produce a couple of very popular uh, shows, rock shows, and um, that involved um, laser effects and a bunch of stuff like that. And uh, uh, and they were they were pretty popular. It drew maybe ten thousand people a night. But but they uh, and we did produce an opening for the Country Music Awards one time. But okay. that's, that's not like producing a film. You know, it's it's Producing a film, it's like writing a novel, like you do. I mean, what what I did, in my view, although I love my stories, of course, I I don't believe I have the talent to do what you do. To take an idea and then to develop it all the way through under a, under a certain theme of, uh, like, like you were talking about at the beginning about your novel, and then to hit the resolution, good or bad in the end, and just create it out of, out of your mind. I, I'm very admiring of people who could do that. Well, you know, like you. <laughs> Thank so, you. I appreciate that. It's, so but you've done you. so, so much. You've, uh, you know, Tales from the Days. Anybody reading your book, some people might think, you know, I've heard of uh, people I've met who were college students, interns, and they told me before they settled down into a job, they traveled to so many different countries. They said before, while they were young, had no 
no mortgage, no 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 children, not married. They were just gonna get out and do like what you did. And they tra- they traveled. They they lived in little small places. They they lived very minimally. But they, oh my goodness, experiences. Whether they went sailing or or what, they just traveled. And they loved it. And they said they. they I've, I've met people who said, said to me, before I get into a permanent job, before I get married, before I have kids and they have to go to school and that makes me have to stay put, I'm going to get out here and explore. And I think that you've done that pretty much, it sounds like, throughout your life, even so much. Like this next question might surprise some of our listeners, but, like, when they ask you, what did Johnny Cash, now he, what did Johnny Cash, oh, uh, uh, you said you, you guys produced the Country Music Awards. I, I love yeah. Johnny Cash. What did he say to your wife? Well, that's that's a big question. What happened was we were hired to do the opening for the Country Music Awards, which that year were being held in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So Gloria was getting her Ph.D., and I conned her into coming in for the show by telling her, how delightful Tulsa was. Oh, God, Tulsa is not delightful, Denise. I'm telling you. But anyway, she she flew in, and, and um, we did our opening, which had a lot of challenges due to uh, the company staging the show, which is another whole thing. And so after our part was done, I was just kind of going, oh, man, this is not exactly what I thought it was going to be. Here's another show that's going live, right? So to the backstage bar to have a beer and uh and Gloria decided she wanted to stay backstage and kind of see the entertainers because there are some pretty pretty hitters there but again she was getting her PhD in molecular biology so the two worlds were pretty far apart right so i come out of the of the backstage the backstage bar and i see this huge circle of people must, Denise must spend 200 people standing wow. around, and in the middle of the circle is this big guy, all dressed in black, and my wife. And I'm looking at this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he's he's saying things to her, and she's laughing and shaking her head and this and that. And pretty soon everybody wandered away. And I went over to her and I said, "What did he say to you?" And she looked at me and just laughed and said, "Oh, just a lot of nonsense." And Denise, to this day, and we've been married a long time, I have never been able to pry out of her exactly what wow. he said to her. Yeah. And I told her the other day, you know, I'm going to be laying on my deathbed. And that's when you're going to come in and say, now I'm going to tell you what he said. And <laughs> <laughs> she's oh, going to tell you. He's like, oh, it's yeah. too late. Yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah. like, was he with so was, I, And he was, was he married to June then? Yeah, yeah, and by by rumors he he didn't screw around. I mean, he they were married. Yeah, they had been married not too long at that time, and so as as she looked at me and said, "Oh, he just said a lot of nonsense." I said, "Do you know who that was?" And she looked at me, and you know, I, there was no guile there. She looked at me and said, "No, who was it?" And I said, "That was Johnny Cash." Wow. And she looked me straight, straight in the eye and said. Who's Johnny Cash? <laughs> Get out! Well, you, you know, I guess with maybe that's why he felt comfortable chatting with her. He's yeah, like she could say, be. 
yeah, she's yeah. just she's not like into was into that. You know, I was watching a, a show last night with uh, about Jimi Hendrix, and a, a guy met him years later, and they worked together a little while. And uh, and Jimmy was telling the guy was saying it's the first time we had met that they had met, and he said, "No, we met a year ago." And it kind of like the story with your wife and Johnny Cash. And he's like, we we set out on his ledge and we talked. And he's like, that was yeah. you. So it was similar, like the. the um, he said, yeah, that was yeah. me. We 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 talked four years ago. Similar to who Johnny Cash, and he probably really, your wife was probably a breath breath of fresh air for him at that point. Now now you also different things for our listeners that you've done. You you said that you don't think you could write a novel. You wrote Tales from the Day, which sounds like a very a a, a, a book people would put down thoughtful and and laugh now what type of stories did you cover while you worked as a military news reporter and 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 being that the show we have a lot of listeners who are writers i wanted to also ask you how working for that newspaper did help you as a writer even as years later you write tales from the day oh yeah denise i mean as as i'm sure you can detest as well the big thing about being a writer is you got to write got to go two things, write and you got to read. It doesn't matter if you're reading good stuff or bad stuff. I, I read a lot. and uh, But, yeah, there's nothing like a, a newspaper or a job in PR or whatever to uh, to really start to hone your skills and to give you the ability to sit down and, and mentally goose yourself and write something. Uh, a, lot, a lot of folks, you know, I'm not sure – uh, if they used to call it the white white paper syndrome, where you, you just sit there trying to figure out what what uh, you know to get started and what you want to write, but yeah, you know the days, the newspaper days, were enormously valuable because they had me doing everything from you know old bits to feature articles to just going out and you know interviewing people, and you learn about clarity and you know the 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 big thing you learn there is the old, my editor used to scream about short declarative sentences. And you learn about doing that. And I, by the way, I'm going to order your novel that you're talking about. And oh, well, I'll be very you. interested to see. Well, absolutely. And I'll be very interested to see how, you know, you set scenes. And, you know, it's a real art form to be able to, Put down sentences and have people see, see, see the the people and the area and the surroundings and whatever. And as you know, a lot of people just ramble on, you know. And and uh, it's a uh, getting clarity, both in you know a novel describing people and situations, and in a a memoir. I think it's one of the hardest things and writing for a newspaper or or a PR firm or something like that it really helps you do that cuz that's all they want is something clear and to the point yeah. you know how long what an adventurer how long were you in the military and can you tell us about some of the exciting places where you were stationed well actually uh I was in the military for 6 years but most of it was reserve and uh uh I wrote a couple of stories about one of them about uh, a sergeant we had who was a, a mean drunk and alcoholic, 
it's called the day the sergeant went fishing, which is uh, you know a, a take on what it means to be under somebody's absolute I can hurt you control, and they're they themselves are out of control. And the other story I wrote the day Joe the mole fell into a hard place was about a as I mentioned a friend of mine who went to Vietnam and and came back. I mean he lived through it. He came back to our our little town, and but he was it made him made him crazy, and yeah, and so you know those are two non funny stories. I like to think the rest of it. Most of the rest of them are fairly humorous because at least my overall attitude is I think people would rather laugh than cry. Yeah, but you know I, I'm, I appreciate you putting that story in there about Joe because. Uh, there are people who served in the service, and they didn't know about PTSDs back then. Just like no. in football, they didn't know about concussions until yep. they had those catastrophes. So, but um, it, it, for people who have served, it's, uh, I, I would I say thank you for that. Even if it's not something you laugh about, somebody might relate to it. It might they might find it encouraging, or if something yep. that they 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 connect with and they decide to keep to keep going through the ups and the downs in life. Now, you've had so many different experiences, Wayne. You just seem like an adventurer to me. You're, you seem like a risk taker. Oh, then when you think about your wife with her Ph.D. and what she was focused on, it's like, wait a minute. Is she like as much of an adventurer as you are? Or is she just like, I, oh, you know, I'm willing to tag along? <laughs> no, I I got to tell you, Denise, she has the heart of a lion and the, and the grit of a riverboat gambler. I mean, I got to tell you, I sometimes tell her, you're worse than I am, you know. And she was born and grew up in a, in a not in the U.S., although she's a U.S. citizen now and has been for many, many years. But her grandfather, no one knows anything about how it came about, but her grandfather built and owned the only casino in an entire country. Think of that. Ah. I mean, I heard that and I said, I want to write a story about that. I mean, think of the the the, the bribery and all the stuff you'd have to do to do that. And the family, I think, kind of, <laughs> you know, let that black sheep out into the pasture. And in the end, he uh, he lost all his money and, and died falling off a horse. So, you know, the story of that. But I tell Gloria, I say, boy, those genes and his blood are pumping through your vein because <laughs> there's a lot of the stuff, especially after we got married, I just could not have done if I had had a partner who was not in the, hey, let's do that. Yeah, <laughs> let's, let's go up to Hollywood. Oh, Sounds like a no, great you idea. You got the perfect match. Now again, you're yeah. like an adventurer, and then with your wife, did you, where did that sense of adventure come from? You did your parents travel a lot when you were a child, or did you have an older sibling who really got out there and and was an adventurer, and that's where you gained that from? <laughs> no, my parents were. Um... They were raised on farms, also, and they're really homebodies. I don't know how to answer that. It's just you know, from the time I was a kid, I just thought, you know, I, I just want to get out and see stuff that this, you know, that I always felt so cooped up. I don't know. So I guess I'm kind of a in in the 
in the great great gravel pile of the family on the traveling stone. Uh, and uh, why, Denise? I don't know. I've often wondered. That's a good question. I've often wondered about that. Yeah, but just like you in want, a small you, town with 500 people, and then all the experiences that you've had. It's like wow. It's just like where where does it come from? Maybe somebody else further back in your family. I don't know. You could be the first, or somebody else could have been an adventurer, like like with your wife. Father, somebody could have been an adventurer that you just haven't heard about. Now, when you were getting the stories together for Tales from the Day, you were talking about that white paper, since you're staring at nothing, and you had these experiences to write from, which all writers yep. probably do write from experience, nonfiction or fiction. Did you keep a journal everywhere you went? Did you keep a journal with you? And not thinking you were going to write a book one day, but just... Like, oh, wow, you had this fascinating experience with the 10K, the Hollywood sign, the, the loan shark thing, the radio, the military newspaper. Did you keep a journal, or when you put the book together, was that all from memory? Most of it was from memory. I did I did keep a journal for a time. The first time I went to Europe, gotcha, Denise, I was just a kid, like the ones you were talking about who went out to get experiences and and – that's where I really got my start at the newspaper because I went into a little newspaper in the Midwest, although, you know, I don't know how little they were, but the, um, and I was pretty young myself and I got the editor on a sober day and I said, listen, I'm going to go to Europe on my own nickel and I want to write for you. And I said, I'll write. And if you like it, pay me by the word. And I mean, I had stolen that from a story I'd read about Hemingway, right? And 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 pay by the word, you know. And he looked at me and he said, "What's it going to cost us?" I said, "Nothing. If you don't like it, don't don't use it. Don't pay me." And so I made that deal, and then we went over, and I started keeping a journal and then writing stories about what we ran into. And so the only one in the book, I think that came from that, other than from memory, was uh, the day I ran with the bulls. Mm. Oh, my God. That, that, yeah, oh, my God. Yeah. Really <laughs> yeah, that one came from the journal. and uh, But the rest of it was just stuff that that happened. And, and when I was talking to my wife about it, I wanted to write this. And she said, how are you going to pick the stories? I said, I'm going to think about the ones that make our nieces and nephews shake their heads and go, oh, no, 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 no. And the ones <laughs> that get me free beer when I tell them in a bar. Those are the oh. ones I'm going to write up. <laughs> now, have any, speaking of your nieces and nephews, have any friends or relatives read the book? And if so, what did, what did they say about Tales from the Day? Well, <laughs> my my relatives uh, who read it, who are close to us, mostly were laughing and said, I heard this the first time, you know, eight years ago when you were drunk at our Christmas party. And, and But, you know, as to the, uh, you know, the friends and the rest of it, have, I, I, I will say the reviews have been kind. I will say that. I'm, I'm pretty gratified at that because you and I know what that's like, you know. And, um, but, um, fortunately the reviews have been kind and those, you know, have come from all kinds of readers, not just friends, but others as well. 
So well, that's good. Can you yeah. share three to four three to four uh, steps that you've taken that you've found to be effective? You're a very good oral storyteller, but three to four steps you've taken that you found to be effective by getting the word out about tales from the day. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, <laughs> this is something I can I can't see you, but I'll mentally I'll, I'm going to see a nod in your head at it. When I first got the book done, after you know I had a publisher, and then after a year I noticed they weren't selling any books, which is kind of their job, right? And so I fired them and went out on my own for a short time. Have another publisher now, but um, and. Denise, I'm sure you've experienced the same thing. When I was pushing my book on my own, and I'll get into how I did that and what I'd recommend, but every flim-flam artist and con person in the country (laughs) surfaced. And they're going to make, you know what it's like, they're going to make you a bestseller if you'll just write them a check, right? So so after, uh, after a while of that, I wrote a little, uh, a little kind of a booklet, uh, which is an ebook. Well, it's hardback too. Called "You're an Author, Don't Get Hustled," and it was about all the scams and and stuff I ran into, and a, a step step by step for people who want to publish a book themselves, how to do it and not get nailed. And so that that's out there, but. Uh, but to, to answer your question about pushing a book, um, there's really – I was invited to a seminar, <laughs> and I swear to these, if they'd had tomatoes, they would have been throwing them at me because they asked the same question there, and I said, okay, there's three things you got to do. One is you got to write something people are going to want to read. Well, nobody yeah. wants to hear that. I mean, you know, at least everybody thinks they got a book in them, but – you know, and most people don't. There's no shame in that. But you got to write something that people want to read. They get involved with, like, your novel, and they get hooked on the characters and what's going to happen and so forth. And, and so that's step one. Step two to make sure that you've done that is to find a really good editor that doesn't have some scam to sell. You know, somebody who can read your stuff and help you clean it up and maybe I don't know if this happened to you but maybe you've got a certain episode or something that should really go toward the front of the book rather than the back of the book and so forth and a good editor who really knows the business can make or break a book so that's one thing if you're going to spend money anywhere I tell people spend it there the third thing to do to really push your book is to find Denise is to find people <laughs> like you. No, I'm serious. Who are doing radio, podcasts? Radio, radio, radio. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 talk to them and see if they like what you've got to say. If there are any three steps that that I would recommend, those are they. Okay. Write and, a good book. Uh, get a good editor and get out there with without getting swindled and get on radio stations and. Press releases yeah. used to work more, but blogs are effective as well. So, but there are yeah. other ways to get out there and, and, and reviews and get the word out about your books. So tell off the shelf listeners where they can get a copy of Tales from the Day. Oh, bless you, Denise. Amazon. 
uh, just type in Tales from the Day and or probably with my name, Wayne McFarland, and it should pop right up. And the reason I always recommend Amazon is because we all know that Jeff Bezos needs the money. Poor guy. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And, and I, yes. I find Amazon the best the best venue. So Amazon for Tales from the Day, and if anybody wants to get the you're an author, don't get hustled if they're thinking about getting out there. You know, as a tip for your listeners who might be wanting to push their book, there's something out there called radioguestlist.com. That might be where I found you. I don't remember. And uh, it is a great service and very inexpensive, and it's full of people. Well, it's nobody like you, but, I mean, it's full of people that have programs that are looking for certain kinds of folks to interview. So that's a great resource, and I recommend it highly. Okay, that's another good tip. So we have had the pleasure of talking with Wayne McFarland, and that's M-C-F-A-R-L-A-N-D. He's online. Check him out, off-the-shelf listener, Tales from the Day, T-A-L-E-S-F-R-O-M-T-H-E-D-A-Y.com. Again, Tales from the Day, Tales from the Way, Day.com. Check out Wayne McFarland. That's the title of his book. You've heard him share some of these stories. You hear what a great storyteller he is. You know he's going to have you laughing or thinking, being introspective, maybe even considering important things from your own life as you listen to him share his tales from the day by Wayne McFarlane. Thank you, Wayne, for being here with us on Off the Shelf. I thank all of you, our, our loyal listeners. You know, I love you guys who've been here with us from the very beginning. And if this is your first time tuning in to Off the Shelf Books Talk Radio, thank you, thank you. Set your, set your clock. Just set it on your calendar. Saturday, 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time or New York City Time because we get people tuning in from all over the world. Saturday morning, 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time or New York City Time. You're going to catch off the shelf. And as I always tell you, remember, you are awesome. You are incredible. You're amazing. Go and create a fabulous day for yourself. Wayne, I'll send you an email when the show finishes streaming with a link to the show. Thank you so much. Tell us from the day, you guys. Bye for now. It was, it was great. See ya. <laughs>